0: Almost ready. Okay, let's roll.
1: They say we didn't start the fire, but then they've also always said that men invented fire and have made such a big deal about how it was this major turning point in evolutionary history because fire made everything possible, And so we started all these little fires and used them to cook food and form society and burn down the rainforest and invent the printing press and turn on the light bulb, and eventually to come up with new ways of making new kinds of fire so that we could melt plastic and spread democracy and spread plastic and melt ice sheets and make printers that print things out of plastic. And I guess it seems like we not only definitely started the fire, but that it was one of the biggest things we'd ever started until we started the internet, which we famously used to ruin all the parts of humanity that we hadn't already covered in plastic and torched.
0: So don't forget to include your sense of hearing, too,
1: like, and and the difference between the motorized sounds and the sounds of the insects. Regardless of who actually started the fire, it was us, unequivocally. The defining fact of our modern human existence is that it's up to us to put it out, and we're rising to the challenge. Over half of the country's registered voters support the Green New Deal, and over 7.5 million people took to the streets last month to stand and shout in defense of the planet in the biggest environmental action in history. And while we're also putting out tiny fires in our own lives with our metal straws, reusable cotton rounds, and hilariously ill-informed aspirational attempts at recycling, we can't help but grieve the peace, love, unity, and respect that used to exist between our mother, Earth, and us, her shitty children, and wonder how we might mend our broken home. And so we did what we always do. Grabbed our binaural microphone headset, went outside, and asked Brooklyn if things were getting serious with the environment, or if we're all just here fucking the planet.
0: So uh, this is an offshoot of a Ditmas Park walkabout. As a New Yorker, sometimes I say to myself, did I just miss winter and fall? Did I just not yeah. look up once in like two, mo- three months?
1: Lucky for us, producer Sasha Whittle ran into Peter Honchark, an environmentalist and therapist who leads nature walks through some of Brooklyn's greenest patches when he's not healing the burrow from within.
0: Here's the third of the three great trees for you to explore today. So I'll put out some mats if you want to sit around and uh, make yourself at home with this tree. See see what this tree has for you. So come on over here. Come over here. So, you know, for now, just let's be here. And there's all kinds of people sounds in the background. But see if you can tune your senses to the woods, just sight-wise and your other senses, just for a minute or two and see what see what's in there.
1: And as we sank into the sweet silence that can only be achieved inside a thicket of trees tucked away in a park in the middle of the center of the world, we began to reflect on our place in it. Why are we here? What are we doing? Isn't it so weird that we broke the planet? Is mankind a virus? Mm
0: -hmm. And the sun.
1: Thinking about the idea that usually we think people
0: are separate from nature, but that's like an illusion. And And today's walk is to kind of cut against that illusion and to remember that we and nature are the same group. We're the same thing. We are of nature.
1: Newly confident that we do, in fact, deserve a place in this world, we got back to the task of saving it.
0: With our good intentions, with our heart, kind of focusing love and goodwill, and that way, even though we can't, we can't single-handedly solve climate change, we can lend our good wishes and love toward the world that we do have and to try to preserve it, you know? So why don't we do that? Why don't we take three minutes and we'll focus our energy, our healing energy in this direction, wishing the baby turtles well with their lives, okay?
1: So three minutes. Begin your meditation now. This month, we're defining the relationships that we're in with the planet. First, we get our feet wet and learn how to properly pick up the crab. Then, we tumble backwards in time and hitch a ride around town on a glacier. Next, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Then we return to the earth and come back as a tree. And finally, we stop and smell the roses that were left on the shelf. When you can't see the forest for the trees, but you're sure the grass is greener, you gotta have park in Brooklyn, USA.
0: Yes. Yes. It's a little uh, clearer. Yes. Yes. We wonder why. Yeah. If there's current or why is that? Yeah. And the lily pads. Yeah. But seeing a duck in the distance, it's good and healthy to go out and see animals in the distance because for like 99.8% of our life as a species,
1: that's how we spent our day you know, hunting, escaping animals and stuff. Under the sea of jet skis, ferries, and booze cruises whipping around Brooklyn's waterways lies a diverse ecosystem of marine life. Back on land, Tanasia Swift works with schools and communities across the city to keep up with the creatures of the New York deep. Each year, Tanasia and her team at the Billion Oyster Project lead the great Fish Count, rounding up fish and inspiring New Yorkers to see their harbor in a new light. This summer, producer Reva Goldberg joined the team at Bush Terminal Park as they tallied 275 living creatures spanning 26 different species and hit a five-year high for winter flounder. Here's Tunisia. So I
2: grew up in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, which is not a location that is along the waterfront. It's very much in the center of Brooklyn. And so my connection to marine life started through my dad. We would go out on these excursions to different places around the harbor, and he'd go fishing, and I'd tag along right there with him. One of my earliest memories was him teaching me how to properly pick up a crab from the back end so that it doesn't pinch me. That became sort of a thing for me, being able to do it and not feel afraid. There was one particular blue crab that I really liked. I remember him having this like, nice blue color, so that attracted me to it as a kid. You love colors, things that move. So I took a pail of water, put the blue crab inside of this pail, and walked it over to the playground, essentially like walking a dog on a leash. My name is Taneja Swift, and now it's essentially my job to help others find that passion and learn about marine life, especially in New York Harbor. The so one thing I get to do every summer is put on waders and help with the Great Fish Count. The Great Fish Count is an event that happens citywide, so all throughout the five boroughs. So at different sites along the waterfront, at different beaches, lagoons, basins, harbor, educators, they're working with the local community to catch different fish. We count them, we measure them, um, and all of our sites share their data and we get a picture of how the harbor is doing.
0: Oh, they're not sea squirts. No, we, can possibly,
2: uh, Smell, yeah. no. we can possibly just put all these inside of this bucket here. So our site was at Bush Terminal Park, an old industrial waterfront in the neighborhood of Sunset Park. So I was there with my colleagues from the Billy Oyster Project. So should we set up three stations? Yeah, maybe like
0: back here where there's open flat space.
2: And looking over the lagoons, you can actually see the New York City skyline and the Statue of Liberty. So, the first step is to sane the fish. So, we want to get the fish from the harbor to land. So, we sweep the water with nets. And so, as you walk slowly through the lagoon, you are catching anything that's in front of the net. Do you want to help oh, yeah. identify and count some fish? So we had the community help us to get the fish from the nets into counting stations. There's a big fish in there. We had a few families come out with uh, young children. Whoa, look at this big crab. Yeah, so we're gonna put them inside of this bucket here, but we're gonna take out all of the big things. You guys see any fish? Yeah. Yeah? I see one. Well, I see a worm or something. Awesome. So let's see if we can get these guys into this bucket. Okay. Can someone walk this over to the clear tank? And then come right back, make sure they get into the water pretty quickly. At one point, there were some little boys. That's cool. They're pretty excited. We're gonna walk over where there's a a bin of fish. Look in here. You see there's fish in here? Oh, wow. Can you see if you can catch some of those fish? We're fortunate enough at BOP to be able to be on the water almost every day. I mean, we want to bring that experience to those who are kind of, like, landlocked or may not have that connection. Good job. We can walk over together. Of course, I can't tell anyone that this is something they should appreciate. The only thing I can do is just show them. I got the shrimp! He has a shrimp, yeah. Let's see if we can find anything. It's it's scary. It's dangerous. It's not. It's not. Look, let me show you. (laughs) They're looking at this critter that's in their hand, and they're trying to figure it out what's inside of this shell, how does it eat? Let's take them out. Does it have arms? Where are the eyes? Um, and trying to find the commonalities between yeah, so like tigers. the human body and a fish. <laughs> All right, so do you want to hold it? Yeah. yeah? All right, you got to be really delicate though, ready? Yeah, Give me your hands. Got it? Yeah. What, what do you think it is? Let's take a look at these photos here. See his two eyes right there on the top of his head? Do any of those fish have eyes on the top of their head? Oh, Yeah, this is the backside. Yeah. Yeah. You can see his spine. You see that? So it's a flounder. He lives flat. Look how flat flat he is. Yes, I see his flat. Cool. These flounders are so cute. I think I have a thing for fish that are a little weird, um, a little different. The flounder, of course, is one of my favorites. Normally... When I find flounder, they are much larger, so about five to seven inches. But these flounders that we were finding were about one inch, sometimes even smaller. And so I think honestly that these were the smallest flounder I've ever like held in my hand. And so even now, like even though I've been doing this for a few years, there are still new things that excite me, and finding things that spark that excitement is what keeps me going. I need my little scientist. Okay. Do you remember what these are? Mud snails. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, let's count them together. Let's see how many we have. So one, two, three. One of the things that we try to do is just change the way we view the harbor. You know, when you think of an Earth Day or think of a cleanup, you always think about the things that you can physically see on land. But when you think of the harbor, you don't necessarily think of that as something that's living. We want folks to have a connection to the water, just as we do with land. So let's release these guys then. Put it down, tip it over, and make sure that the fish go out that way. Goodbye, fishies. If you have a connection to something, you're more inclined to speak up about it, to protect it. Awesome job today, guys. That's what drives me on a daily basis, to see the spark that I had as a kid grow in someone else. You're awesome. We need more hands in the field. So if you're around, we'd love your
3: help.
4: Bye, thanks for coming, guys.
0: I'm going to (laughs) tell So so, hard to believe, but my friend is walking along here one day, and she sees this turtle like that. She was biking? Okay, so she sees the turtle like this, right? But out in the open here where you wouldn't think. You would think they like it sort of near the lake, yeah. in the shade, on a log, protected. But I guess when you gotta go, you gotta go, right? Uh, as, as you've been telling me today about, about that your history with that tree. But somehow with, with, her, with her back paws flippers, she clawed and made a hole, a big hole, a big hole and proceeded to lay one at a time 10 different eggs like you guys once were. In fact, Henry was saying as we walked, did I remember teenage mutant ninja turtles? Did you guys know about them?
1: Millions of years ago, a sheet of ice thousands of feet thick formed over North America. As it expanded, it crept south, eventually reaching and covering most of New York. 18,000 years ago, that glacier began to recede, but not without leaving its mark on the landscape a line of rubble stretching across the northern United States and cutting directly through the heart of Brooklyn. Producer James Deneen met up with geologist Guillermo Roca to learn what that glacier left behind and why. Here's Guillermo.
5: Now, what do you see with this rock? Uh, I see, I see layers. Layers. Um, This has to be the Manhattan Schist. Manhattan Schist came from Manhattan? Yeah. It's actually all these rocks, you know, just think about all these rocks being in Manhattan and the glacier comes up and it's just picking up, sometimes plucking these rocks from the bedrock. You know, if we keep uh, seeing rocks, look at that rock right there. This is completely different to anything. Yes or no?
6: Yeah, it's like a, like a speckled,
5: Pigeon exactly. Or something, exactly. Or speckled no, egg. Yes, this is another type of granite. And look at this rock, which I don't think. Uh, yeah, that's a breccia. It's a type of conglomerate. That's also, uh, you know, it's a sedimentary rock. I don't know how that breccia got there, but, uh, Maybe it could be man-made. You know, a piece of, of concrete. Uh, let's see. No, it is a breccia. So it is. Oh no! Look! At, look at the crystal. This is an interesting rock. So most likely this was transported by a human. <laughs> we are at the boulder bridge in Prospect Park. And it's basically a bridge that's made of boulders. So we see, for example, uh, granite, uh, basalt, sandstone, Manhattan schist. All these rocks uh, were actually transported by a glacier and they end up up here and using the same stones they build that beautiful bridge that we are in front of glacial erratic is basically just like the name said erratic these rocks are not supposed to be here these are not the native rocks of the uh you know the basement these are not the rocks that uh, you see underground these are rocks that come from somewhere uh, somewhere else so we have rocks from connecticut we have rocks from new jersey we have rocks from the newark basin so what happens is let me just show you up here Uh, we could go and let's just make our uh where was it so the story begins about 2.6 million years ago. That's when the glacier up from Canada started moving down south. And basically cover all the way uh, you know, to this place where we are at now. Right now we are at the point where the glacier advanced the most. So this is the, basically the end point. Once this glacier started uh, melting about 13,000 years ago, all these rocks basically were left up here and they didn't move since then.
7: Except when somebody picked them up to build the bridge. Exactly, (laughs)
5: that's it. (laughs) If you think about a bulldozer that is just cleaning up the land surface and is taking all those rocks, uh, you know, Pulling them—that's how a glacier will act. A, a glacier is just like a gigantic bulldozer that it will just move all these rocks, uh, sand, gravel, debris, etc., from the surface of the earth, and it will just take it at the end of the glacier. So it will transport all these rocks just as, as in, in the same way as a bulldozer will. will. You could see, for example, I brought my little map here. All these places are named hills. Right, like you, um, I don't have my glasses on me, but you could see. um,
7: Arden Heights, Bay Terrace, Lighthouse Hill, Toot Hill, Park Hill, Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, Park Slope, Prospect Heights, Crown Heights, Cypress Hills, Ridgewood,
5: Forest Park, Forest Hills, Hillcrest, Jamaica Hills. Exactly, so all those hills and uh, ridges are where the terminal moraine ended, right? So if I could show you right here, you uh, you know, the demonstration of what's happening. Okay, let's do it here, because the rocks are smaller. So let's say that this was the glacier. So we have all this that's being pushed. And you see how clean the rock is, right? And a lot of these rocks, because the ice is a fluid, they actually will be encased into the ice, and they will move also. Like a snowball. Exactly. Very much the snowball effect. A huge snowball. Gigantic. You know, if you could think about the glacier that came here, and it will go over probably 500 feet, 2,500 feet. That will be the thickness of the uh, glacial. So that tremendous amount of ice, you know, you are like, if you were just to visualize it, you are, you know, with an with a ice of sheet that you could see like top in the, in the sky. You know, it's just tremendous.
7: just thinking about erratics, as soon as you start to think about them, you notice them everywhere.
5: Exactly, exactly, they are everywhere. Because, you know, that's, and and just look at the extent. You know, this is what we see in the surface. Now imagine, you know, 400 feet of all this stuff, you know, that is being carried by the glacier. So you could see the power of that glacier. You could see the power of that ice, the force. Tremendous. And, you know, we could see some features here. That's definitely Manhattan Schist. This is a good indicator, the um, lines. This is also Manhattan Schist up here. Uh, another granite, most likely this is basalt. So we have different types of rocks. That's the great thing about New York City. A lot of people don't understand. It's one of the few places where you could see igneous, metamorphic, and sedimentary rocks together. There's no, there's, but there are very few cities, there are very few places in the world where you could see that. And it's just amazing, right? You go to New Jersey, you have igneous rocks. You go to upstate, you know, but Connecticut, the tri-state area, you have all these uh, granites and pegmatites, etc. You come up here, you see a terminal moraine, and you see the sediments. We have limestones in upstate New York. It's, it's just a great area to be a geologist. But here, uh, for example, you know, do you see the crystals? Yeah. OK. You see the large crystals? They look like pieces of broken glass. Exactly. Kind of mixed into the rock. Uh, this is called This is quartz and feldspart. Feldspart is another mineral it's right here. And this will be considered a pegmatite. Pegmatite is another igneous rock that is actually, you know, if we go to, again, to the provenance of this rock, most likely will be Connecticut. Yeah. This one doesn't look as smooth as the others. Right. It's actually a rock that is used a lot for you know, countertops for building. It's a really strong rock. So just imagine the force that had to be there in order to, you know, make these edges on the rock. And this is, uh, this is another rock which is called Conglomerate. Conglomerate is a rock, uh, sedimentary rock, which is basically a melange of cemented uh, pieces of gravel. Okay, let's, uh, let's see if we could see more stuff up here. I think they should rename the bridge. To what? Something like Glacial Erratic Bridge. That, that would be better. <laughs> then everyone yeah, that would understand. Be yeah, yeah. What are these it's things? Amazing. It's, it's truly amazing. And you know, like I said, we, we live in an area that it's really, geologically speaking, it's a really nice area. Now, you see that rock up there? That's uh, granite. See the difference between the basalt and the granite? Right this one on top is basalt, that one's granite. My name is Guillermo Rocha. I'm a geologist. I work in the uh, uh, private sector. I was an environmental geologist for a while. And they uh, end up teaching at Brooklyn College. So it's the best job that I could ever have. And I've been doing that for almost 19 years now, teaching in Brooklyn. Gnarly,
0: that's a great word, gnarly. (laughs) So that's another nice way that the walkabout works is whenever you have a word or a phrase or a bit of poetry that you're reminded of, just come on out with it. Gnarly. Random. <laughs> uh huh. Random walk, you said? Random walk. Yeah. That's a technical term. Oh, is it? Oh. Yeah. Like 50% chance going to the
1: But they use the word
0: walk. Yeah. That's interesting.
1: Speaking of which, The Brooklyn Botanic Garden was built on a coal ash dump in Crown Heights over a century ago to ensure that future Brooklynites would have access to green spaces. Today, the garden is home to over 8,000 different plant species, including rare and endangered cacti, orchids, and bonsai. But Crown Heights is gentrifying, and the plants and people living in the shadow of a changing skyline are facing the extinction of their generational home. BrickTV's TV's Brian Vines and producer Emily Bogosian journeyed into the flowers to shed some light. Here's Scott.
4: My intention is to get us into little shady locations where we might then chat a bit. So um, maybe we might start up on Magnolia Plaza. And how interesting, we're looking for a little shadow uh, this morning, but um,
7: this July, The Brooklyn Botanic Garden opened its Fight for Sunlight exhibition to protest the developer's plan to build two 39-story mixed-use towers at the site of the old spice factory on Franklin
4: Avenue. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Scott Medbury, the president of Brooklyn Botanic Garden. I'm delighted to have you all here on a sunny late July day where we're opening our exhibition, Fight for the Sunlight. So we're looking right across the street in this gap where the 40-story towers would be. So we're going to take a look at some of the collections, but the I'm Scott Medbury, president and CEO of Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And I always use the CEO, but I'm using it now that I'm... Because my, my successor may be into that part, but it really is. You say, executive officer. Oh, okay. But that is the title.
7: Scott Medbury, who's going to be giving up his title when he leaves the garden in early 2020 for a job in California, toured us around the exhibition.
4: yeah, I've collected this plant in the wild myself. I'm a plant guy originally, that's the passion that brought me to my career. I grew up in Hawaii, sort of the endangered species capital of the world, where I knew plants that were in some cases the sole remaining specimen of that plant. We used to hike and collect a lot, and I lived on Oahu, but we went to these mountains, the Waianae Mountains, and one time one of my snarky hiking buddies, we were looking at the sole remaining specimen of a rare, a Lobelia family plant, he goes, hey, guys, look, an extinction event, and he went as though to pull it out. And we almost had a heart attack, but he didn't do it, you know. But had he done so, it would have been true, it would have been extinct forever, you know.
7: Mr. Medbury says that, according to internal modeling, the 52-acre garden could lose up to four-and-a-half hours of sunlight a day, leaving the living collections in their conservatory and nurseries vulnerable. The garden is home to 8,500 different plant species. 500 of which are rare or endangered.
4: I understand the garden's history and the the twists and turns of the many things that we had. The Great Depression was tough on this garden, as was the bankruptcy of the city and the reduction of city funding in the mid-70s. But I would say this is the greatest threat this institution has ever uh, encountered.
7: The current zoning that protects the conservatory was put into place in 1991 and extends along the perimeter of the garden. The garden is located next to the Brooklyn Museum in Crown Heights, a historically black neighborhood that's experienced rapid gentrification over the past several years. Between 2010 and 2018, rents in Crown Heights increased by 35 percent. And a study done by the city council in 2018 revealed that the neighborhood also has some of the highest eviction rates across Brooklyn.
4: We're all New Yorkers. We understand the housing crisis we're in. We just imagine there are other places to do this where that wouldn't have this impact. There are other high-rise buildings proposed in Crown Heights, and mostly we've sort of stayed out of that conversation. But we must stand up to this because it has a real perspective impact.
7: The garden might be new to the conversation, but the fight to protect the neighborhood that surrounds the garden has been raging for years.
3: You know, look at this. These things have been growing <laughs> <laughs> for the last four years because I have not been gardening. So I uh, a- my name is Alicia Boyd. I represent uh, the MTOP, the Movement to Protect so the People. I, I am. I'm determined. So I have my pots here. FLAC, which is Flower Lovers Against Corruption, and BAN, the Book and Anti-Gentrification Network.
7: Uh, I know this isn't your first time at the rodeo as well. We saw the video of you at the community board when all of that kerfuffle
3: Oh, when I got arrested. What the hell? <laughs> Yes, that's a famous video. Yeah, it, it made the
7: rounds, and here you are again. In
3: 2014, 13, 2012, there was a plan put in place that they would do a district-wide rezoning. And if you know anything about the ULURP process...
7: Mandatory inclusionary housing allows developers to build higher and denser if they include a certain percentage of affordable units. But to get approved, they have to go through a political process called Uh, ULURP. The
3: Uniform Land Use Review process. We were able to stop the massive district-wide rezoning. And that has been because of our due diligence at the community board. And so we've been able to, you know, stop that through lawsuits. Through, have now been through litigation, through arrest, <laughs> through protests, through education, and through monitoring um, our community board and holding them accountable.
5: We had 32 yeses, seven noes, and three abstentions to accept the letter of recommendation for the removal of district manager Pearl Miles. The motion carries the district manager Pearl Miles has been removed from community board nine. In 2015,
7: district manager Pearl Miles was stripped of her title, a direct result of community protests. Alicia, MTOP, and other neighborhood groups have fought CB9 every step of the way. MTOP is notorious for being relentless. When a lot was bought on Clarkson Avenue in 2015, someone tweeted, don't tell MTOP. The group is controversial and has gotten in trouble in the past for using divisive rhetoric. My name is Ellie Cohen, and I'm the executive director of the Crown Heights Jewish Community Council. People have raised very important issues And there was not one word said, as some of the literature that's gone out and some of the rhetoric that's gone out, trying to inject one neighbor against the other, one
8: race against another, one religion against another. And I implore you, you may be very
7: passionate about this issue, one way or the other, don't stick race into it. There are poor poor people.
4: last thing I, I want to say is that I've heard a lot about racial unity. We've got people in the neighborhood who are calling
6: people Uncle Tom's. They're race-banding Jews. They're also, there was a, I see you right there. You're the one who called me KKK. So either you got to tone
7: it down.
3: Buy her. Doesn't she want something? Of course, I've been offered a couple of, uh, you know assembly seats and stuff like that and a little bit of money you know can't we just buy her of course they would they they would like for me to go away i bet you if i put my house on sale they'll buy it like this (laughs) i'll be long gone out of the picture but, you know, I think it's important. I think it's important that there is resistance to development. We want our major corridors off because we know what major corridor development does. It displaces, goddammit, it displaces. Now we will not be displaced out of our goddamn community. Did you get that?
7: When it became clear that community resistance was going to stand in the way of a district-wide rezoning, individual development companies began to approach the DCP.
3: There were two uh, major rezoning requests. One was for a smaller development, and the other one was for a larger development. So the strategy was let the smaller one go through, let it break the plan, let it cause the damage, and then when the bigger one comes by behind, the bigger one can say, oh, well, the damage has already been done.
7: <laughs> In 2016, Cornell Realty submitted a rezoning request citing the mandatory inclusionary housing program. And in 2018, their application was approved by a city council vote. Council Majority Leader Lori Cumbo voted to greenlight the project in exchange for more affordable housing units. The garden has always maintained that these smaller proposed developments will not have a significant effect on their collections.
0: Uh, we have determined that we're not going to
4: take a position on these projects because it's farther away and their early morning
7: summer shadows will have little to no impact on the garden. But in 2017, when Bruce Eichner and the Continuum Company paid $75 million for the three-acre lot where the spice factory sits, they began to get political. They started an online petition and gave testimony at a heated scoping hearing in March of
5: 2019.
7: The project proposes 50% affordable housing, and developers have agreed to use 100% union labor. At the hearing, most support came from individuals representing labor unions. You know, you're going to put the casting of shadows. Over the safety of workers, right across the street at, Cornell, uh, at the Cornell site, workers are being exploited. They're not being paid the proper wages. Some are owed hours. This is what's going on in Brooklyn. And the one bastion of good jobs is going to be thrown to the wayside because of a parking space. It's a
0: shame. And the people here who've been complaining should be ashamed.
7: I'm ready to put a shuffle in their hand Done for them walking into the streets with a gun in their hand. MTOP and other groups opposed to the project requested additional environmental reviews, reviews that took into account sun glare, bird migration, and possible significance to the Lenape tribe. Lori Combo sent a representative.
6: And while these commitments to good jobs with livable wages, both during and post-construction, cannot be overlooked, we are also faced with downtown Brooklyn-sized towers overshadowing the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and Prospect Park shattering all precedent for height and scale. This proposal developed with zero community consultation or input may need a full reset, not just tinkering around the edges.
7: A spokesperson for the Continuum Company testified that their preliminary shadow studies showed no significant adverse shadow impacts. They added that the garden has
4: ignored their request to meet. Scott Medbury denies this. A um, member of the garden's board of trustees did meet with the Continuum Company, despite what they've said, when they first were floating this co- uh, project, And uh, but we don't years really... Years ago? Was, about two and a half years ago. Okay. Bruce Eichner and the
7: Continuum Company could not be reached for comment. For MTOP and the garden, the development at 960 Franklin Avenue poses a massive threat.
3: 483 feet, as far as stories, about 43 stories high.
7: So about 43 stories high in a neighborhood where the typical structure dwelling is it's three to, three four, to four, four stories.
3: stories yes, 99% of our homes in this community are three to four stories. Mm-hmm.
7: So a giant sequoia among the daisies.
4: <laughs> if we're giving a
7: botanical yeah, yeah.
3: Yes, uh, uh, we call it the monster. We're talking
4: about tens of thousands of kinds of plants.
3: 1,500 apartment units. There's
4: over 400 um, different bonsai in the collection. Uh,
3: Around 5,000 people. There
4: are 31 separate chambers or spaces in this complex of conservatories, greenhouses, and nurseries. The
3: developer wants to bring in 1,500 residential units and only have to provide 180 parking spaces.
4: The developer suggested that we
3: Morning.
4: Try to employ artificial sun. Look
3: at our transit system. It affects
4: flowering, it affects growth of everything.
3: Communities of color have to bear the burden of this increased development, and then we bear the burden of displacement. This is the place for our greenhouses. We've invested quite a bit of money to build them, so why should we have to move them? Because you wind up bringing in a group of people that then push the other community residents or the existing residents out. The intention is to have me removed and my and my people.
4: Our responsibility to care for a collection this special is really huge. We take it
3: so seriously. Just a humongous impact upon the neighborhood. It will be devastating for us.
7: But neighborhood activists and garden officials have different philosophies when it comes to organizing.
3: Why hasn't BBG done a shadow study? One excuse we got, oh, we don't have enough money. We had two shadow studies that we did, okay? How much did you pay for it? We paid 1200 for one and about 500 for another. Okay, so we spent about two grand. And you telling me that BBG can't come up with two grand or three grand to sit there and do a shadow study, and yet they're doing million-dollar renovations right now currently as we speak?
4: Brooklyn Botanic Garden was created uh, in a partnership with the city of New York between the nonprofit Botanic Garden and New York City. And together, we've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in creating this institution over its 110-year history. And so uh, we feel it's an incumbent upon us to protect this and to do this well and not in an alarmist or hysterical or exaggerated way. Our concerns are legitimate and real, and uh, so far that message seems to be resonating with our Our members, our visitors, our donors.
3: We're talking about a rezoning that does not just include this one development. This rezoning includes 30 plots of land, all to be rezoned, to be developed, for air rights transfer and this transfer and that. So we're talking about a wall of development that could be worth billions of dollars.
4: We're about plants and kids and making New York a greener place. We would not be in a conversation about zoning or about housing, but we have to with the Spice Factory.
7: Along with her colleagues LaShawn Ellis and Michael Hollingsworth, Alicia is still fighting the smaller developments, threatening to break the community plan.
3: We have been very successful at at least initially in the beginning of filing a lawsuit and getting a temporary restraining order against the first development. It's a rarity that um, TROs are granted to applicants, um, especially pro se applicants. And so people are like, how did you guys do that? Well, we did our homework.
7: They've spent the summer defending the validity of that suit in court. At the end of the summer, a group gathered outside the Supreme Court in downtown Brooklyn.
3: Good good morning. I just, I don't know, I I want to speak to you guys. First, I just want to say that my heart is really overjoyed that you showed up because it makes a difference. M, as in Maxine, as in Magnificent, Bonds, my last name, B as in boy, A-R-N-E-S. And I've been in this fight for a long, long time, uh, before it was popular. My name is Erica James. I'm Brent. Yes, I
8: live
7: in the neighborhood. Hi, I'm Dr. Anna Maria Thomas. I am an educator who retired in 2012 after 39 years with the New York City Department of Education.
8: I got a flyer from someone about
7: this meeting. I received an email last night. I got here at 8.40, waited till 9 o'clock so I could get a seat. I didn't realize how crowded it was going to be. We need our green spaces.
8: We don't want him to get rid of our green spaces.
3: We want our air, we want our sunlight, we want our our birds and, and and insects, you know, to
8: thrive. We don't want to get to, that's a beauty.
0: My partner's LaShawn. The first time we hung out was in the garden um, because we're both members. It stormed and we were the only two. Everyone left and we stayed in the storm and we were the only two in the garden. We just had a lot of fun. (laughs) And Asha's like, whoa, who is this person? She's amazing. When I moved to the neighborhood in 2014, you know, I had no idea.
3: I'm going to continue to fight. I'm not going to stop fighting for justice because even if I can run and go back to my country, but my grandchildren and great-grandchildren lives here. They were born here. So I have to fight to help to make it better for them. That's right. I have a team that I work with. Raise your hand if you're a part of that team. We, I we, we felt that it was so important for there to be a movement to protect ourselves because we know that big-time real estate is really, you know, pushing forward and going into communities of color and rezoning and bringing luxury and causing displacement. ...that has happened with this lawsuit. Shenanigans!
7: Not everyone who stopped to listen to Alicia's remarks on the court steps was there in support of Mtop's lawsuit. One woman shared that she's in a housing battle of her own.
3: Um, I've been fighting in housing for the past five years with my landlord because um, we're a gay couple, my girlfriend and I. They dragged me to court for five years because I live in a rent-controlled building on Eastern Parkway, Franklin and Classen. All this over an apartment that we live in, my girlfriend there for 40 years, I'm there for 30 years. I mean, when you see people go crazy, the system drive you crazy. This is why
7: the support for here is so important with you. Where there's unity, there's strength, you're fighting this by yourself right now. And the only thing we all can do in this is unify our efforts together, for so that the players judge players sees you know, we're not playing this is yeah, not an issue that you're just gonna sweep it. under the rug
3: and and let it go
6: it's not, gonna it's not it's gonna happen. happen
3: it's going to take perseverance it's gonna take determination it's going to take um, money you know, and protests. We're going to have to possibly protest. And there might have to be some arrests with those protests. So you might see some more footage of me being arrested. And, and it is our fight. It's mm-hmm. really all of our fights. Because when one person wins, then everybody wins.
7: So who's the oldest person on your block?
3: The oldest person on my block is my neighbor next door.
7: <laughs> so Her
3: name is Mrs. Bostick.
7: <laughs> how would Mrs. Bostick describe what it is that you do and who you are?
3: Um Miss Bossick would probably say that I was the person who used to take her to these uh to the concerts in the summertime. Um, the jazz concerts up in Harlem when she was a little bit more uh capable of traveling. Um she would say that oh I'm the person who was always out there gardening, but all of a sudden no longer am I gardening outside because uh, you know, she's into some political stuff, I think. <laughs> Um, she, that's what she would say. She would say that she's a neighbor, she's
0: a neighbor. (laughs) So we're exploring as we go, we're exploring the surface of existence, but also the depths of existence, including when we were there meditating by the turtle's nest, I thought to myself, we humans, we tend to think of going into the earth. We associate it with death only. You know, but there, the turtle the turtle has a different sense of, of the uses of going into the earth, right? And maybe we could use, you know, the other animals' sensibilities about the earth rather than just being afraid or sort of feeling like the earth is alien or where we go only to die. Maybe if we learned from the animals, you know, t- you know who nest in the earth to treat the earth differently.
1: Amy Cunningham is a death educator who works with those in grief to send their loved ones off with meaning. Through her work with green burials and cremation, Amy is reshaping the way that traditional end of life practices are approached and carried out, with a focus on sustainability and accessibility. Forgoing the chemicals and hardware it takes to preserve the human form, Amy opts instead to view death as a reconnection with the Earth. Producer Lindsay Schedule caught up with her in Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery to explore the history of post-death practices and the recent shift towards cremation and the natural world. Here's Amy.
9: We have all kinds of cords connecting our energetic system with that of the deceased. There is no death in nature. The natural process of of building up and, and dissolving down is part of all life. Funerals should be real and connect us with the earth. I'm a licensed funeral director, working to help families all over New York City with green burial, Cremation and home funerals, where the deceased is laid out in the parlor in the old-fashioned way. I was born into a grieving household, so I think I've had a connection to loss for all my life. I grew up around a family that was grieving the loss of an infant son who had died at the age of 13 months before I was on the scene. There was also two uncles who had died in World War II whose pictures were on the wall, who I think my dad was very much missing. So there was a lot of people who were very present in the house even though they were absent. I was 54 years old when my elderly father became ill and died in South Carolina. I was amazed at how well my dad directed his own death. So out of that experience, I came back to Brooklyn and said, I wonder what it would be like to be in that line of work. In the early days of pioneers, if someone had their own land, they had their own family cemetery. The community took care of their own. There was no organized industry. During the Civil War, there were so many men dead in the battlefield that initially they buried them in trench graves. It was decided to preserve them for transit to their homes for burial. Embalming became the bedrock of the American funeral industry. I'm trying to make death a communal experience again and not just a medical event. The funeral industry has not been running clean, and nobody has been paying attention to our habits until recently. A green burial is a way to care for the dead in a way that furthers legitimate environmental aims. There's no embalming of the body, no chemicals used to preserve a biodegradable casket, which can be of pine or wicker. All of these caskets dissolve in the soil and allow the body to very naturally go back from whence we came. It's the same burial that we did in this country 200 years ago. The soft tissue on our bones has usefulness even after death. These are molecules that can return to the soil and foster plant life. This soft tissue should really be seen as something of value rather than just something to combust. The need to address the issues of global warming and climate change have inspired a lot of people who were already in the green burial movement. They've become more outspoken. We need to look at all of these environmental issues, find ways to honor our dead and then dispose of them. Very bad in our society at saying goodbye. When you look around your friends and relatives, you'll see the theme of grief weaving through. My hopes are that we learn to see death as inevitable and very natural and even beautiful. Grief will be with you for the rest of your life. So being present to that grief. Becomes a tool and a way of being. This is consistent with Buddhist belief that in death contemplation you become more present to what is. I think we need to carry our grief and share it with others.
0: So, eco-psychology, as I understand it, is an attempt to take... You know how modern therapy is one patient, one therapist? Well, in the old days, Native American psychology, Aboriginal psychology in Australia, African psychology, they used to think about the earth and the person and healing both in the same process somehow. And so that's what eco-psychology is trying to do. There's a book that was written and the name is, uh, we've had 100 years of psychotherapy and the world is getting worse. So eco-psychology is an attempt to take the good healing that a person experiences in therapy
1: and have it be the healing of the earth and the person. Founded by Caroline Gates Anderson, Bloom Again Brooklyn takes unsold or gently used flowers and crafts them into beautifully uplifting experiences for those who need them the most. Producers Kritzi Roberts and Kyrel Palmer followed the Bloom Again team to PS29 in Cobble Hill to join in on the eco-friendly fun. Here's Caroline. The power of flowers
8: are amazing. It really breaks isolation to give the gift of beauty to somebody. It doesn't have to be somebody who is... In a healthcare center, it can be anybody that hasn't had the opportunity to have some reinforcement in their lives. I'm Caroline Gates Anderson. I'm the founder of Bloom Again Brooklyn. Bloom Again Brooklyn upcycles flowers. It goes from the very beginning of flowers that were going to be trashed, they weren't going to be used because they had nowhere to put them. And that's where it all started. The next step was to figure out what the second life was for flowers. And so we started out with going over to Cabo Hill Healthcare Center four years ago and asked them if they thought that their residents might like an interaction with volunteers. When we talked about who would you like to visit us and who would you like to work with, they always said young people, please.
6: This is an ICT class, which means that some of our children are special needs children, and some are in the general education population. Everybody is
8: going to get one picture. You are making an arrangement for a person who might not get flowers all the time and who is older, and it really makes a difference when you bring beautiful flowers into somebody's room.
6: A few summers ago I heard about Bloomington Brooklyn through social media. I think it was New York Cares, had a, a little piece with some photographs of people helping out with flowers, and I thought it'd be a great fit for our third graders. Fun story.
8: One of the seniors that lives at Cabo Hill Healthcare is named Mary Zagami, the principal of P.S. 29, a very long time ago. And she's thrilled that you all are making an arrangement for her, as are the other seniors. She reached out to us at one point to see if we could come in and work with the children because the children can really
6: relate. What does it mean to be an agent of change? Oscar. People who don't, those people don't normally get flowers Every day. Raven, you want to add to that?
8: And we're being agents of chains doing it, and and we're helping them to say, you can still go, you can keep on going with your life.
6: Yes, all right, so we're going to call you by table, I think, to come over to get some flowers to make for your arrangements. I got emails from parents just saying they cannot wait. They're so excited to come to school to make flowers tomorrow for the senior citizens. So it's something they've been really, really excited to do. I really wanted something sunny
3: since spring is coming, so I tried to make it
4: look
6: as bright as I could. Our school, our our kids always write letters to everyone said, I hope you are making flower arrangements for senior citizens because you need to be agents of change. So this is
0: too- from
6: it, so, these people can feel so, we knew then that we were on to something really great, and it's something that the kids held on to throughout the year.
8: Thank you very much, all of you from PS29 from Melinda Manna's class. The residents at Cobble Hill Healthcare Center, right across the street, are really waiting for these arrangements. We're going to distribute them today. We're going to give them the cards today and tell them a little bit about how you did it. We have photographs of you all and they are really going to bring some sunshine in. You have made a difference. You have become an agent of change. It's
6: a gift uh, that you give them that we appreciate so much.
8: Well thank you to the Bloom Again volunteers because they are what makes this run. I think the aha moment for me with Bloom Again Brooklyn was that it was not only about the recipients, but it was also about the team building with our own team. And if we didn't have a team at Bloom Again Brooklyn, we wouldn't have an organization. I see it as being who's working with all sorts of organizations to enhance their missions. we enhance our mission.
9: Hi, how are one you? One small one there. <gasps> A small Hi, oh, oh, right, right. we've met
8: before. Yes, you how are you? are you? Which one do you want?
5: To help people
8: be, have an enhanced life that have had some tough times. Flowers are for everybody.
5: Um, I was just going to say, what about this yeah, one? That's nice. This is pretty good, yeah. right? Very. Yeah?
8: They're really food for the soul. I mean, they really feed the souls. And I think that the residents, the way in which they look forward to them every week with the volunteers visiting with them, feel yeah. the same way. Hi, Mary, how are you? So these are flowers for you, made by the children of your old school, PS 29. They made some carts. Kamari at PS 29 said, happy spring. Mary Zagami, I made this for you so you are feeling better. Kamari. Oh, that's a nice Happy cat. spring. It's been a real privilege to work within Thank the community with both Cabo Healthcare Center and PS29. And it really is uplifting for both the children and the seniors. we
0: together at the, the peaceful place of the watering hole. Anyway, that's the end of my lecture, and that's the end of our waterfall walkabout for today. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah.
1: Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias, and Emily Bogosian, Shadeen Bargi, Kyrell Palmer, Sasha Whittle, and Charlie Hoxie. Thank you to Reva Goldberg for jumping in the deep end, and to Martise Smith, the World Science Festival, the Billion Oyster Project, and the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation for their help with this piece. You can follow Reva on Twitter at Reva Goldberg. Thanks to James Deneen for the mental image of a giant snowball Katamari Damasiing its way around New York. You can find more of James's work at jamesdeneen.wordpress.com. Thanks to Brian Vines and Emily Bogosian for spending their summer in the shadow of doubt. Thanks to Lindsay Schedule for showing us a better way to get to the other side. And thanks to Kritzy Roberts and Kyrell Palmer for making doing good look really, really fun. If you like what you hear, think we got something wrong, or just want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us at Brick Radio or rate and review the show on the apps. And now, you can watch some of the hottest video content coming out of Brooklyn, USA, on the internet. Visit youtube.com bricktv to watch short docs on Amy Cunningham and on Bloom Again Brooklyn. We're tackling everything from gun violence to cooperative economics this season, and we want to hear from you. If you want in, send tips, pitches, thoughts, ideas, self-destructing messages, or just regular, normal emails to pitches at brickartsmedia.org. And check the show notes for a link to our pitch page if you want more info.
7: And if you do care about the environment, and who doesn't really, I'll be tackling climate change in Brooklyn on this season's Going In with Brian
1: Vines, Wednesdays at 8. This episode featured music from the DeWolf Music Library. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.
8: Does, does
0: anybody know where the band stage. shell is?
9: Yeah, you, you know, on the other side, like on 11th, like
0: par- in the park slope side.
9: Yeah. Yeah. They, in yeah. the summertime, they set up a stage and they have concerts. it's yeah. Much
0: larger than this. Yeah. and they have a lot of seating. You can more have you guys been to concerts there? You have. Yeah, yeah, Celebrate Brooklyn up. is what it's called, yeah. as Henry was saying. Yeah. Right. I yeah. Think is a oh, yes. Oh, so mm-hmm. Sasha and John. Yeah. Wow. You're, You're not alone.